0: On episode 529 of the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, we meet Dr. Malcolm Kendrick and discuss his book, The Clot Thickens. You can find the full show notes for this episode at 40plusfitnesspodcast.com forward slash 529. If you decided you're ready to make a change to reclaim your health and fitness, the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast is here for you. Each week we dive deep into health and fitness topics that affect those of us over 40. I'm Alan Meisner. I'm an NSAM certified personal trainer with specializations in corrective exercise, behavior change, and fitness nutrition, a FAI certified functional aging specialist, and an OTA level two online trainer. I'm joined each week by our co-host Rachel Everett. She is an NASM certified personal trainer and a RRCA level one run coach. Let us be your coaches as you find your way on your health and fitness journey. All right, let's go. Hey Raz, how are things going?
1: Good, Alan. How are you today?
0: I'm tired.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I bet you've been busy.
0: I've been busy. Yeah, we're moving. We're moving the gym. Uh, we've talked about this a few times on the show, but yeah, this weekend um, was the was the when the rubber hit the road and. And got a crew together loaded up almost all the equipment put it in there and i'm kind of um i'm kind of particular about certain things in a gym you know and so i want to make sure this stuff makes sense and you know so there's not one piece there and then you know the other piece there so if someone wants to work legs it kind of works if someone wants to work with the dumbbells it kind of works so i was you know putting it in and, and i had a lot of people helping and it's great to have a lot of people helping But sometimes it's also not so great to have a lot of people helping, (laughs) you know, when you're like, okay, I got to figure things out and I don't want a lot of people standing around. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, okay. uh, So everybody got all the equipment in there. And just so there's just stacks of shit stuff. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. I am tired. Uh, And and so, yeah, so stacks of stuff everywhere. And I'm like, okay, I'm going through it, putting it where I want it, assembling things that weren't assembled or had to be unassembled to move and uh got everything kind of where I want it and then today was just uh working on taking the camera system down and it's just you know it's kind of surprising I mean you know I'm generally fit Mm -hmm. but I'm I'm apparently not walk up and down a ladder a lot of times and (laughs) move the ladder and up and down again and up walk the ladder but that just I mean that that's that kind of workout. I'm like, I'm fine. Just let me pull stuff around and mm-hmm. just, you know, pick up dumbbells and go around. I can do that all day long, but that sure. up and down the ladder thing is just, man, that's, that, a, that's a workout. Yeah. So if you and want to work out, yeah, if you want to work out, grab a, just grab, grab a six foot ladder, <laughs> open it up, set it up, just walk to the top of it, reach up to the wall, grab something and just, and then just, you know, touch them on the wall and then come back down, move the ladder again and go up again. Just, just do that about 50 times. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like you have a
1: new piece of equipment you could add to your gym.
0: <laughs> yeah. Ladders. Uh, well, there is, there is actually a piece of machinery called a Jacob's ladder mm-hmm. and it's, uh, basically these rungs that, uh, just go and they, they, you put them on a machine like a treadmill and mm-hmm. you reach up and you grab one of the rungs and wow. it just goes. And so it's like, a you're like, you're, Consistently climbing up a ladder at about a mm. probably about a forty-five degree, maybe a little bit steeper than a forty-five degree. So there's a little bit of upper body strength because you're not just pulling yourself, but you're sort of also having to support a little bit of your body weight at that angle. And then, of course, most of it, if you're doing it right, is with your legs. So mm. yeah, there is a Jacob's ladder that's an, an exercise <laughs> piece of equipment or torture equipment, if you will. Yeah, uh, you can do, you can do the same thing. Just go to Home Depot and buy a six foot ladder. Uh, <laughs> oh
1: my gosh that's a workout
0: yeah so how are things up there
1: good it's funny you say you're tired I was going to say the same thing my trainer um, calls this month the monster month which is very appropriate I did a 16 miler the other weekend and 18 after that and uh, this will be a cutback weekend and after that will be my 20 miler so that's a monster month that's a lot of miles and I'm tired
0: It is. You know, (laughs) I I never did. I never did twenty miles training ever training for any of the races, even the ultra that I did. mm I'd never done a twenty.
1: What was your highest? I
0: I think I did an eighteen. Yeah. When I was training for the ultra.
1: That's a very common point to stop at. Some people do 18 or 20. Um, other people might do 22, but usually 18 is the magic number. So there's really not a whole ton to gain with just two more miles. That might be just, you know, anywhere from, you know, Well, you are pushing, so,
0: you are pushing past what would normally be the bonk for most runners. And so, yeah, the 14 to 18 miles is, mm-hmm. and, and anyone doing a, mar- doing a marathon or planning to do a marathon that 14 to 18 is about the time when your body starts telling you hey <laughs> this mm-hmm. is okay we've done enough of this it's is probably mm-hmm. time to stop uh and so the individuals that can mentally push past that point mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. actually potentially go forever uh not true but in a general sense there's there's a mental aspect of every mile after 14 that's mm-hmm. very different, uh, and, and it, for every person, it's a little different, it
1: is. Um, yeah. but
0: I, I just know that, you know, you're when you if you get to a marathon, uh, by mile 14, I'd say probably 90% of the people doing that marathon are walking at that <laughs> point. <laughs> Uh, And Mm -hmm. so they might've started a little faster than you, but if you're still, if you're still basically even doing a jog, you're going to see a lot of walkers after mile 14 and a lot of people bailing out uh, at that point too. So maybe pushing yourself just a little bit past bonk in a training run is, uh, is actually good from a mental Mm -hmm. fortitude. If, if nothing else,
1: that's what I was going to say. Yeah. 20 is my preferred number for me. It just makes me feel a little better, a little more accomplished. I feel a little bit more confident. And so for some reason, for no reason, really physically, it's just for me, that's the mental part where, okay, I know I got this. So yeah. Okay. How, how many
0: weeks out are we from the run?
1: Oh gosh. I think we are five weeks away. Five weeks. So it's okay. early April. Yep. It's coming so up So is fast. this a long
0: taper or are you going to have a monster and then a couple yeah. other really Tough weeks I think, or?
1: I don't know, because I only get two weeks of my schedule at a time. And and the reason why we do that is because it could change based on how I'm feeling. I might progress yeah. faster or need some more recovery time, but I suspect that I will probably have roughly a two week taper. So to the 20 miler, will probably be. Be my last hard effort, my long effort. And then it'll just be kind of fine tuning little stuff after that. Probably some more
0: Hill and speed work. S- speed work.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Always the fun stuff. It's fun and fast.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. are, are you ready to have this conversation with Dr. Kendrick? Sure. Our guest today is a general practitioner who couldn't ignore the loose threads on the current approach to heart disease. He's dedicated his career to pulling those threads, pulling apart much of what the medical establishment has marked as done in the field of heart disease. In the book we're going to discuss today, The Clot Thickens, he puts forward another hypothesis and provides support for his new model he also gives us some actionable tactics and strategies to avoid heart disease ourselves. With no further ado, here's Dr. Malcolm Kendrick. Dr. Kendrick, welcome to 40 Plus Fitness.
2: Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm 56 years old, uh, male, um, Caucasian. And so uh, anything that do, does with heart disease uh, kind of comes top of mind uh, as the number one killer for guys like me, uh, and ladies, uh, my age as well. It's just, uh, it's become a thing that we all know is, is, is actually the biggest killer for most of us. And so your book, the clot thickens, the enduring mystery of heart disease. Well, of course, I'm going to want to read that mystery, uh, because it's a murder mystery. Uh, (laughs) it's a big one. Um, so, um, I'm really happy to have you here today. Uh, the one thing I'll start this out with is, while I I do consider myself somewhat of a health and fitness geek, I I'm not anywhere close to the running, in the running for cardiovascular research geek of the year as as you are. Uh, so I I have to tell you, as I was reading the book, I, it, one it's fascinating. One uh, I I'd, I'd love to sit down in a bar and have a beer with you because uh, I you know just you just seem like that kind of fun guy that I would enjoy that time with. But beyond that, I I, I think. You you opened up a whole whole different layer of the onion, and then literally just started chopping it up deeper, deeper, deeper. You know, I I thought I knew a lot uh, because I've talked to a lot of people and I've studied this, and like I, like I said, I consider myself a geek. Uh, but then you started really going deep into some of these concepts that, uh, quite frankly. Um, it's deeper than I could wade and understand all the time. So I'm going to tell you, you left me, you left me alone sometimes, but you always seem to come back. And it was just this layering of understanding that when you get to the end of it, you're like, well, okay, that, that actually makes sense. And that's why they say this and they do that. So I want to get into that in a little bit later, but I want to thank you for this book, because I do think for anyone who's concerned about their heart health, uh, or anything cardiovascular health related, uh, this is a great book to read. Thank you. Now, uh, of course, uh, most of us, we're in our 50s, 40s and 50s, 60s. Uh, we go into the doctor, they, they take a little bit of blood beforehand, and then they go in there in shock and awe. Oh my God, your cholesterol is so high. Uh, how are you still alive? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we've got to get you on a statin. And a lot of that comes back to this, uh, this, I'm going to call it a cholesterol hypothesis, but to, to be fair, uh, anyone on that side of the argument, they don't believe it's a hypothesis anymore. Uh, they believe it's a law, uh, a law of, of heart, uh, if you will, this is cholesterol, why can we talk a little bit about why this became so contentious? Why, why is there no debate beyond the, this is what happens and and then a little bit about why there might be a crack in the armor for this uh, cholesterol hypothesis.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you go through this, and, and you can go through it in different ways. That the the the, 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 uh, the sort of question of why has it just become this unquestioned fact? The the first law of statin dynamics, or whatever we'd call it, is uh, it's quite interesting. But uh, I am interested in looking at how ideas take hold and become incredibly widely believed based on on very little uh, in this case it was more than a uh, very little but the idea itself was was in a way i think it's taken hold because it's so simple although it keeps changing so the the original thinking was if you eat too much cholesterol or a diet in cholesterol this will raise your blood cholesterol level and then the, this excess cholesterol will be deposited in your your arteries that will cause thickenings and narrowings and, and then eventually one of the thickenings will fully block and you'll have a heart attack or stroke. So it's incredibly easy to visualise. And I think as a story. Humans love a nice, easy story. I think it was H.L. Mencken who said for every complex problem, there's a solution. It's a, uh, easy, simple to understand and wrong. Um, and in this case, we, we have a very easy and simple to unsto- understand story. Of course, if you go back to the, I suppose the man who pushed it hardest was Ansel Keyes, who many people have heard of. Some people think he's a hero, um, he's not not one of my heroes. But um, he uh, he was the first one to really push it, and he started off by saying if you eat cholesterol too much cholesterol, the cholesterol level will rise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He then did experiments on feeding human beings cholesterol and find it made absolutely no difference to the level of cholesterol. Although at the time, the cholesterol he was measuring. I'm not entirely sure what it was measuring because no one knew there was a thing called LDL. They just measured a kind of blue lipids in your blood. So um, leaving that to one side, it made no difference. And in fact, if you look at recent experiments, cholesterol in the diet makes almost no difference to cholesterol in your bloodstream. And of course, you don't even have any cholesterol in your bloodstream. So the whole concept starts to fall apart as you as you dig into it. But then uh, I think it was kind of floundering a bit in about the late 70s and 80s when there had been various cholesterol, which are actually LDL low-density, like protein-bad cholesterols, the term for it, lowering agents, but they hadn't really made any difference. Uh, then statins came along, they lowered the LDL, they reduced the risk of heart disease, and they were hailed as the ultimate saviours of mankind. And um, at that point, really, any opposition, apart from very few people, just, just faded away. have your hypothesis, high high LDL causes heart disease, it would lower the LDL um low density lipoprotein and the rate of heart disease goes down now you know that that's pretty strong evidence you would imagine and, and in fact most people thought it was conclusive this is it if you like um so i think that's kind of i mean i've brushed over millions of bits in a way but that's, i suppose that's the kind of basic elements to it and of course there was a point where where um, um to, to um researchers goldstein and brown found that people who had extremely high levels of LDL in their bloodstream were more likely to die of heart disease when they were young. They then identified a thing called the LDL receptor, which takes LDL out of the bloodstream. And people who had fewer LDL receptors or ones that didn't work properly had these extremely high levels of LDL. And, um, and, and, and then they said that a lot of them died very young. And, and this, if you like, was conclusive proof. And in fact, people throw the familiar hypercholesterolemia, which is a term for very high. It's not cholesterol, it's LDL. So it should really be called familiar familiar high L-low-density lipoproteinemia. Um, but if you look at the actual uh, facts around familiar hypercholesterolemia, in fact, that argument doesn't hold up very well. But people just don't even wish to look at it. But um, In fact, I wrote a paper recently with a few other Research is showing that if you have some people with high LDL, at the same time have a high number of clotting factors. The two things are very often related, and in fact, the LDL receptor itself takes clotting factors out of the blood. So if you have less LDL receptors, you have both a high LDL and you have a lot of extra clotting factors. So there's two things going on, and in fact, when when you look at um, Familial FH, and you look at say brothers who who got this, the gene for LDL uh, being raised. One uh, actually, they have one of them has the LDL problem, and the other one doesn't. They both have the same rates of heart disease because the other one's also got the clotting factor abnormalities. So in fact, it's almost like um, I sometimes use the example of um, Twelve Angry Men, a film which you may or may not have seen. But um, it, it starts in a courtroom where where um, a young Latino man, this is the 1940s, is accused of murdering his father. And all the evidence is built up that it looks like it couldn't possibly be anybody else. It's got to be him. He was seen holding an unusual knife. Somebody shouted, they heard, they heard him shouting, I'll kill you, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the film is basically somebody picking every single piece of evidence apart to the point where you end up saying, well, actually, yes, um, he couldn't have stabbed his father because the person who apparently heard him shout was, was deaf and it was an L train going past <laughs> at the same time. And the person who thought they saw him stabbing him wore thick glasses and couldn't possibly have seen what was going on, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. All those are very simple things. But the central theme of the, of the, of the film um, was actually that once you've decided someone's guilty, you create all the evidence and you just bring it around and everything is made to fit to this, um, to this um, action. Uh, whereas if you sort of come back and say, look, okay, let's, Let's let's see if anybody else could have committed this murder. Let's look at what actually happened, and, and to an extent, that's that's kind of where I took it. Which is, you you almost can't talk about heart disease without talking about LDL and cholesterol because that's that's the playing ground field, if you like. And I've said to many people I discuss it, I've tried to say, well, if you play on that playing ground, on that playing field, you know, the referees belong to them, the ball belongs to them, the stadium belongs to them. They write all the rules, and and you can't win. So what you have to do is say, well, I'm not going to play that game in that place because I can't win there because you'd end up talking about cholesterol all the time. But I don't want to talk about cholesterol because it doesn't make any sense. So I've tried in this book to sort of say, leave it aside. Let's look at it from another perspective. Is there another way of looking at heart disease ignoring LDL and cholesterol and all that that actually fits the facts better than the cholesterol hypothesis? And in fact, yeah, well, I believe that almost, Anything fits the facts better than the cholesterol hypothesis because beyond the the things that I've told you, some of which are not even true, there isn't anything to sustain it. You know, people say, oh, I'd use an example sometimes. I say, well, smoking a cigarette, what does that do to your LDL level? Nothing, you know? So, So where's the connection between, there was an advert in the UK at one point showing people smoking cigarettes. And as they smoked the cigarettes and a sticky goo came out the end of it, and they were trying to say, you know, if you smoke a cigarette, the sticky goo goes into your arteries. It's like, well, well there is no sticky goo in a cigarette. <laughs> so where does the sticky goo come from within the cigarette? It, it, there was nothing there to associate with, say, the LDL hypothesis. So, you know, there's there's a very important factor. And you said, well, it, makes, it has absolutely no connection with cholesterol or LDL. And if you look at, say, diabetes, which probably from a population perspective and the fact that there are more people with diabetes than, anyway, there's millions of people um, on a population basis. And yet, and yet, you know, um, diabetes doesn't raise your cholesterol level. It has nothing to do with your cholesterol level. So, so it's obviously operating through a different mechanism. So when you start looking at the things that can cause heart disease and say that we know cause heart disease, I mean, there's some things that we say cause heart disease and they don't, but smoking definitely does. Diabetes definitely does. And you look at those two things and you say, well, let's try and relate them to the LDL hypothesis. Well, I can't. There's nothing there. There's nothing to grab hold of. So something else is happening in this case. Something else is causing the heart disease with these very highly increased population levels. And if you look at even raised blood pressure, which which does increase the risk of heart disease, again, what's that doing to your LDL? Nothing. So when you start looking at all sorts of factors, the most important factors, you know, if you go to your doctor and they say, Let's look at your risk of heart disease. Um, you know, there's about, in the UK, they have a thing called Q-risk. It's about 20 factors, of which none of them are LDL, actually. Just, yeah. It doesn't even figure in, 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 in assessing your risk. So, um, you know, the more you look at it, the more you think, well, this is just, doesn't, it just doesn't work, basically. It
0: yeah. doesn't the way, work, I, the way I look it at it is, is, is you ask someone, where did you find your keys? And the answer is the last place I looked. And so if you think you have your answer, you stop looking. Yes. And if we did that in other aspects of science, we would we would still be saying the earth is flat. Yeah. We would still be saying the stars and the, and the planets circle us and we're the center of the universe. Uh, and, and I don't mean that in a soft way. I'm just saying someone had to be the heretic. Someone had to step out on a ledge and say, <laughs> well, you know, there's a few bits and pieces here that just don't seem to make sense. They don't line up the way that you say they do. And here's this other hypothesis that seems to line up more of them, yes. uh, and that's the hypothesis you brought forward in the book—the thromb- thrombogenic, or I'm going to call it from going for blood clot, because that that's that, comes, that rolls off the tongue a little easier. Yeah. Well, thrombogenic <laughs> is
2: it, yeah. We like to use Latin in medicine, don't we? Yeah, thrombo and, just means blood clotting, and genic just means the initiation or where yeah. it comes from. So it's anyway exactly
0: we get a, you get into medical terminology a few times in the book because it, a lot yeah. of times the same words are used for different words are used for the same thing and sometimes oh, yeah. the same words are used for different things where you're talking salts or you're talking this or that. So the, the reality is, is it gets very complex. sometimes it's just the term terminology that makes it that way. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode of the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast is sponsored by the Nutrisense CGM program. We talk about blood sugar a lot on this podcast because it is the root cause for most chronic illnesses. But knowing how food, exercise, sleep, and stress affect your blood sugar is difficult unless you test regularly. When you are able to track your blood sugar in relation to your lifestyle, you get actionable data. That's where the Nutrisense CGM program comes in. With an easy and painless application, their continuous glucose monitor, along with the support from a registered dietitian, will let you know definitively what happens to your blood sugar as you eat, work out, sleep, or deal with stress. Whether it is a hard physical day while fasted, as I did recently with the gym move, or trying your favorite restaurant meal. I'm so happy the Chicken Vindaloo at Ohm Restaurant doesn't spike my blood sugar, you'll have peace of mind that you're on the right track managing your health. The NutriSense CGM program includes a smartphone app that connects via Near Field Communication, NFC, to pull your data each time you sync the app with your monitor. You have the data and analytics you need, and your dietitian can answer all of your questions and help you take the steps needed to address your metabolic health needs. Head over to NutriSense.io Forward slash forty plus, and use the code forty plus for thirty dollars off your subscription to the NutriSense CGM program. That's N U T R I S E N S E dot I O, forward slash four zero P L U S. Use the code four zero P L U S for thirty dollars off your NutriSense CGM program subscription. In, in the blood clot hypothesis, can you kind of give us like a, a general high level overview of what that is and how that's different?
2: Yeah, well, it, essentially it's very, uh, I try to keep it as simple as possible. It's that all your blood vessels are now, just starting with the point that obviously blood, this atherosclerosis, which is the thickening in your arteries, uh, it only occurs in your arteries, larger arteries in your body, never in your veins. And never or very rarely in in the blood vessels in your lungs which are called the pulmonary circulation uh, which is one of the first things you look at and say well why why there but anyway all of the blood vessels in your body are lined by a thing called endothelial cells a bit like tiles on the wall although they're obviously a lot more complicated than tiles on your wall and so you have the tiles on your, your tiles flexible tiles on all your blood vessels called endothelial cells and they have many different functions. They have, I like to think of the endothelium as, as like an organ of your body. It's just so hugely complicated, so many mechanisms. It does so much. These cells are like just unbelievably complicated. But anyway, they outside of all their functions, one of the clear functions that they have is to stop anything sticking to them. So they are like Teflon. So blood flows through them. It doesn't stick to them and it doesn't form clots on them. And there's all sorts of things. There is, as I was saying in the book, that all these endothelial layers are actually covered by a very Teflon layer. It's not really Teflon. It looks like a lawn under the electron microscope, little tendrils and tendrils of of, of sugars and proteins that stick out. And they contain and within this forest are anticoagulant factors and, and, and factors that make the blood vessels contract and expand it hugely complicated system going on in there. But essentially, there is a very strong do not clot here message going on in all blood vessels. So, But if you damage this glycocalyx, which is, is a term that most doctors have never heard of, but if you damage the glycocalyx and you expose the endothelial cell underneath, you start to lose this anticoagulant layer. And if you strip endothelial cells or damage them, then you expose the underlying artery wall And then that's a very big mistake because lying in there are like factors that are incredibly potent blood clotting agents, a thing called tissue factor, which is basically like, it's a red alarm signal. The moment tissue factor is exposed, the blood hits that point and just goes, bang, I'm gonna have a blood clot. Of course, if you take off one endothelial cell, we're talking about something that's a hundredth of the thickness of a human hair. So this is not a major blood clot we're talking about. But if you do say a thousand or however many it is and damage them in some way, a blood clot will form at that point. Now, this is probably happening, I hate to say it, in, in your blood vessels most of the time. We are continuously having points in our blood vessels that are undergoing a lot of stress and a bit of damage and a bit of blood clot forming. And mostly what happens then is the blood clot stops growing because for every, every factor that says blood clot start here, there's another 20 factors going stop, stop, stop. You know, we don't want this going too far. So it's a tremendously complicated feedback system all the time. It's clock, don't clock, clock, don't clock. It's it's the it's just mind-bogglingly complicated. But anyway, so a clock forms there, it stops forming, it's shaved away through various mechanisms, and, and something that people couldn't understand for many hundreds of years was how do you find a, a plaque, which some people have said was a blood clot, underneath this endothelium. Because surely, if the clot forms, it must form on top of the endothelium, not underneath the endothelium. And um, in fact, the very first person to propose this hypothesis called Virchow in 1852. So we are going back a long time. Couldn't explain. He said, "I'm looking at, when he, when I'm looking at atherosclerotic plaques. I'm looking at blood clots. I'm looking at them, and they are blood clots in various stages of repair and growth and whatever." And another chap called Virchow who many people would have heard of, said, "But." It's underneath the endothelium. So they knew there was a thing called the endothelium in 1852, which I'm quite impressed with. And they also knew what they were looking at. And so people who say there was no such thing as heart disease before the year 1900, I've seen, I've got two guys in Vienna discussing atherosclerotic plaques in detail 50 years before this. But anyway, so what they didn't realize was that, yes, you get this blood clot and it forms on this area. And then what happens? Well, if it just broke off and And carried on down the artery it would eventually block something further down so that can't happen so what happens is that there are pre-endothelial cells they're called endothelial progenitor cells they're floating around in your bloodstream they're made in your bone marrow and they recognize this area of blood clot and they stick to it and they form a new layer of endothelium on top of it and then the blood clot that has formed is now within the artery wall this is how it happens Endothelial progenitor cells were not discovered until the mid-1990s, by the way. So obviously, what then happens is that that little blood clot that's formed, mostly repair systems come along, things called macrophages, white blood cells, they clear it away, they chomp at it, they break it into tiny little bits, and then get rid of it, it's removed, and it's gone. The problem happens is if you have repeated blood clots at that same point. So you kind of get a blood clot, blood clot, blood clot, blood clot, blood clot, blood clot. It then becomes, it's obviously an area of vulnerability because that point where it's formed, the new endothelial cells are not as robust. There's a bit of clot lying underneath it. It's a bit narrowed at that point. So this becomes a focus, if you like, a a bit like a pothole in a road where you know, a pothole forms and then somebody bumps onto it and then bump, 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 bump. And eventually you get this. Big pothole, which is a major problem, and you've got to fill it in. And as I sometimes use the analogy, if you don't fill in your potholes fast enough, then your roads will be a disaster. If you make sure you repair your road potholes fast enough, then you will have an apparently smooth road. If you look at it closely, you'll probably see yeah, there was a pothole here once, but it's, it's okay now, it's been repaired. And then gradually you get blood clot forming after blood clot forming after blood clot forming. The, the artery narrows at that point, and then it becomes the focus for that final. Blood clot that is big enough to block the artery fully. And then you have things like heart attacks and strokes. So it's really just the same process. And, and, you know, conventional medical thinking accepts that the final event is a blood clot. We all know that. There's also a pretty wide acceptance that the growth of plaques is due to repeated blood clotting at the same point. You can see this happening. And you can see that in some, if you look at some, of the uh, of the plaques and arteries it looks like tree rings plot you know one after the other. What they won't accept is that the first step of this process is the same thing. That at the moment the idea is well it's LDL that gets into the artery wall and causes the initial thickening and then and then what another process takes over the blood clotting process. all I'm saying in my head, all the thermogenic hypothesis or the blood clotting hypothesis says is it's the same process from start to finish. The first step is damage to the artery wall, followed by a blood clot. The growth is damage to the artery wall, followed by a blood clot, and the final event is damage to the artery wall, followed by a big obstructive blood clot. So essentially, it's just the same process all the way through. That's it. It has. It's not a complicated mechanism. In fact, it's quite an easy mechanism. I think most people can understand it. It's not beyond the ken of anybody to understand. So that that really is the, the the process of plaque initiation growth and then the final terminal obstructive event is all the same thing. So that, that's it. Does that make sense? Or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit on our plan here because I think this is actually a real good time to talk about lipoprotein A versus the LDL that we've become so accustomed to measuring. Um, you brought up something i think that was really interesting was that you know I, and I've, I've talked to a lot of doctors and a lot of them say yeah there there's there's cholesterol in in those blockages those blockages have cholesterol in them uh, which you would expect if the blood's clotting is pulling in a lot of other stuff with it but in fact what you've said in the book was that these are more like uh, cholesterol salts i guess or so, so cholesterol esters i'm sorry i think is what you said cholesterol esters versus uh, yeah. actual cholesterol, cholesterol. Yeah. and and that's where the uh lipoprotein a which in talking to some people about blood tests they're saying you want to add that to your lipid panel because that number might actually be important more important than ldl and in your book you seem to indicate that it it probably is although we don't have a statin or something we can really take to reduce it so there's not a lot of emphasis on studying what we could do about that
2: no well yeah i mean this is part of the almost a 12 angry man approach is that you say oh look there's cholesterol crystals inside atherosclerotic plaques then there are um, cholesterol crystals inside atherosclerotic plaques and the the argument goes well you know, cholesterol is carried around in LDL, low density lipoproteins, and therefore the cholesterol we see as these crystals must have come from the LDL. That, where else could it have come from? Well, of course, the answer to that is that the the yeah, cholesterol is carried around in low density lipoproteins, as are fats and some other things. But the cholesterol is all carried around in a in what's called a cholesterol ester, which is one cholesterol molecule attached to a fatty acid. So that's just ester is acid plus alpha. Don't worry it's chemical, it's relatively straightforward. But one thing you cannot do is turn a cholesterol ester into a cholesterol crystal because you need pure cholesterol in order to do this. So the one place it could not have come from, a cholesterol crystal, is the LDL. That's that's not a possible source for it. So then you ask the question: well, where could it have come from? And the answer is the only tissue in the body that contains sufficient free cholesterol. Is, is the membranes of red blood cells. Actually, neurons have quite a few, but they don't float around in the bloodstream. And, and in fact, cholesterol is essential to the function of red blood cells because it modulates the, what they call the, the lipid layer, if you like, and allows the oxygen to get in and the carbon dioxide to get out without this intercalation, which is the, you know, the thing within the, 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 the red blood cell membrane. It couldn't work. So it's very high in cholesterol. And that is the only potential source of enough free cholesterol to form a crystal. And in fact, there are several papers. If you go and look, and if you decide to look, people have looked at it and said, basically, yes, the cholesterol crystals are found, not in all plaques, but in, in, in an awful lot of them. And um, and that this cholesterol cannot have come from cholesterol esters within LDL. Therefore, they must have another source. The only possible source is red blood cells. I mean, they've, this is written down in I don't know, 10 papers that I read. They only These people have just come to this conclusion. But they don't. The next conclusion is, therefore, well, if it didn't come from LDL and it came from red blood cells, this changes our entire thinking about what's inside a plaque, doesn't it? Well, apparently it doesn't, because there is no evidence you can present that interferes with people saying, well, it doesn't matter anyway. I mean, the other thing, and you're touching on it, is that, of course, you can find the remnants of lipoproteins, low density lipoproteins in plaques. We can find the remnants of anything if you decide to look hard enough. And, and then people have said, well, that they must have been LDL. And you go, well, yes, it, you can find these things. But of course, what, what people don't, I mean, if, if you went and asked 100 primary care physicians or 100 doctors, basically, and said, what is LPA, lipoprotein A, what is it? They don't know. They have no idea what it is. And when you say to them, what LPA is, is an LDL molecule with an extra protein attached to it. And that protein is apolipoprotein A. That's why it's called LPA. So this extra protein is stuck to the side of an LDL. It's quite a big protein. And you're going to ask, well, what the hell is it doing there? Why have, say, 20% of your LDL molecules floating around in your blood got this additional protein stuck to the side of it? It can't be there by accident. It has to have a purpose. So well, what is the purpose? Well, the interesting, the fascinating thing is that um, is that if you look at blood, all blood clots when they form, contain a protein called plasminogen. Then plasminogen is incorporated into all blood clots, and it doesn't do anything except if it is if it is activated, it turns into plasmin, which is an enzyme which splits apart blood clots. The plasmin is a blood clot destroyer. And you, 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 you turn plasminogen into plasmin with a substance called tissue plasminogen activator. And some people may have heard of this, because when you have a stroke or a heart attack, you can be given this enzyme as an injection. And it finds a blood clot, and it strips it apart and gets rid of the clot. So you you the, the circulation uh, opens up again. Now, TPA turns plasminogen into plasmin. I won't be following this because it's you kidding know, and, me. And LPA, the apolipoprotein A protein that is attached to LPA is almost identical to plasminogen. It is In fact, it is chemically identical, except it's folded differently at one end. That's important because enzymes, if they come across a protein that's differently folded, can't do anything with them. So TPA comes across LPA and bounces off it. So LPA inhibits the function of TPA. So if you have a blood clot with lots of LPA in it, TPA can't turn plasminogen into plasmin, and the clot cannot be got rid of, at least not so easily. And what's interesting is that if you have damage to an artery, the first, almost the first thing that's attracted to it is LPA. It sticks to the surface area, forms bonds there, and you've got like a super glue or whatever you'd call it, layer, which is absolutely rammed in there. So, the more LPA you have in your blood, if you get arterial damage, then the the heart, you get harder to remove blood clot forming there. It's a tough thing to remove. So, the TPA comes along, tries to activate the plasminogen to turn the plasminogen into plasmin. LPA is there. It says, nope, you ain't transferring anything to anything. And so therefore you have a blood clot. So the LPA doesn't cause the damage to the artery wall, but when there is damage, it accelerates the or accentuates the damage considerably. So it's more difficult to get rid of this clot. So instead of a a blood clot size A, you have a blood clot size 2A. So that point of damage with people who have high LPA um, levels is going to become more of a rapid focus for the development of heart disease. Now, of course, the other thing that happens is is that the LPA becomes incorporated into the plaque. And the LPA, if you look at it and you don't look for the apolipoprotein A protein, looks exactly like LDL because it is LDL. So if you just look for LDL, you find LDL. But if you look for LPA, you find it's actually LPA. It is not LDL. So this is just uh, it's just a complete idiotic guide to grabbing the wrong end of the stick this is, these, by the way, this is not controversial. I'm saying these things, None of putting the whole story together this way, people don't tend to do it, but nothing I am telling you about the structure of plasminogen, TPA, protein A, blah, blah, blah. None of, this is all just factual. You can go and look it up and you will find, I'm just saying things that are absolute scientific facts. So you're right. LPA is more of a risk factor than our heart disease. It's more of a risk factor than LDL because LDL isn't a risk factor. It is a risk factor for heart disease. But if you don't have any of the other underlying problems that cause endothelial damage, it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to happen. And the reason why we have LPA in the first place is because humans can't produce vitamin C. And vitamin C, if you don't have enough vitamin C, we can't make it ourselves. We have to eat it. If you don't have enough vitamin C, one of the first things that happens is your blood vessels start to crack because vitamin C is required to produce collagen and collagen strengthens your arteries. And when your arteries start to weaken, your blood vessels start to weaken, which is why the first sign of scurvy is bleeding gums and then bleeding everything else. And then you bleed to death. So LPA comes along, finds these cracks and sticks to it. Now that's great if you don't have enough vitamin C, but if you have uh, too much LPA and you've got cracks forming and you don't want them to form, then you're at more risk of dying of heart disease. This is just a fact. Again, so, so in fact, everything, if you turn it around, if you decide LDL causes heart disease, you look at plaques, you see they've got LDL, then you see they've got cholesterol in them, and then you go, ah, oh, look, it's all it's all there. And you go, yeah, but the cholesterol can't have come from LDL. It can only have come from red blood cells. And the LDL particles you're seeing are actually LPA, which is a completely different thing. It's actually a blood clotting factor. It's got nothing to do with raised lipid levels in your blood. So it's just, again, you can... yeah, It's a bit like, the, the, as you said... You know, does the planet circle the Earth, or does the Earth circle the planet, as the sun? You can you can almost create, a, a, and in fact, people did, um, a model where you have the Earth at the centre of the solar system, and the sun going around and the moon going around, And people did they had complicated models. 600 BC, the Antikythera mechanism, produced by the Greeks, where you cranked it round and round, and then the planets moved in order, and the sun moved, and the moon, and you could work out where you were. It's just, it was completely the wrong way around, but it very nearly worked. And again, yeah. with the LDL hypothesis, it's the wrong way around, but it very nearly worked. So in other ways, that's why it continues, because you can look at an individual thing and say, oh, look, that's proof. And you go, well, actually, it's actually that's contradiction, not proof. But, but um,
0: you know. Well, like I said, when, once you find your keys, you quit looking, so,
2: <laughs>
0: yes, <exactly. laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, oh, you know, well, you use them to beat to death anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, you Start your car them. and run over them. Yeah. That's uh, right. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about that because the, the, if is the really important thing, if there's damage, if there's significant damage, then, then we have a problem, particularly if we have these other risk factors. Uh, I want to go through a few of these because these are really important because you, you're, you're probably going to hear the, the alignment with a lot of things your doctor will tell you. Um, and, and, this is, this is kind of a, the linchpin. This is, if, you, if you address these things, uh, you lower your risk uh, considerably. So the first one is blood sugar. And before we jump in, I wanted to say one thing real quickly. I really appreciate that you took the time to discuss diabetes and pre-diabetes and really kind of just came to the whole conclusion. That let's just call them the same thing. Because just because you haven't diagnosed it doesn't mean it doesn't exist we're already long down that road before it happens. But the core of it is what's happening with our blood sugar and then the insulin response of our body. Can you get into why blood sugar, uh, high blood sugar particularly, is a problem for our endothelialite? Endothelium. Um, Yeah. Endothelium. Endothelium. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, as I
2: said, the endothelium is... is, um... It has this lining called the glycocalyx, which is uh, it's like strands of sugar and protein all stitched together. again, this is say we'll call it we'll call it one millimetre thick. It isn't one millimetre thick. It's about point zero or whatever it is, one millimeter thick. Um, and and you want it to be thick because it it acts as a protective layer. It stops blood clotting. Blah blah blah. So when you look at uh, and it's possible to look at the glycocalyx layer under a microscope now there's a glycol check monitor thing where you can stick it under the tongue and you can you can see the thickness of the glycocalyx and you can do certain things to it you can make people's blood sugar go up and if their blood sugar goes up you can see the glycocalyx shrinking and people who have high blood sugar levels have got damaged clumpy not very healthy glycocalyx this is Again, just you can go and look up, I think it's called glycocheck or something, but you can you want to go and look at it, look on a good glycocalyx. Anyway, so obviously this makes the entire, uh, the underlying endothelium is now exposed to the blood. Things come along and stick to the endothelium, things damage the endothelium, the endothelium gets stripped off, blood clots form. It's just the same process really going on double trouble with uh with with, uh, diabetes is because not just your big blood vessels that have got glycocalyx uh lining them your small blood vessels your capillaries your arterioles these are tiny tiny size are big enough to allow one red blood cell to squeeze through sort of size um they have glycocalyx on them and um and obviously they don't have room for atherosclerotic plaque to develop inside them Um, that would be like a, a small snake swallowing an elephant we're talking whether that's the correct size or not, a blue whale maybe. So, so you can't get atherosclerotic plaques in, in tiny blood vessels. You, but what you can do is you can destroy it. So, if the glycocalyx is damaged and then the capillary is exposed to things going through it and then it's damaged and ripped off, what happens is the capillary just breaks down or bursts and is no longer there. And you can see when you, with the damage that you get in diabetes. It's not just big blood vessel damage; it's small blood vessel disease. SM, SM small blood vessel damage. Anyway, um, and uh, and the key areas of your body where you need these small blood vessels really is the back of the eyes. Tiny little blood vessels there are, 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 are nourishing your macular, uh, your your macula, and your retina. And you can see if you look at the back of the eyes with diabetes, you can see little hemorrhages and bursts and white bits where things and exudates have come out. This is because the small blood vessels are being destroyed by the diabetes which the shy sugar levels damaging the glycocalyx and allowing the damage to occur so diabetic blindness is a real problem same thing happens in your kidneys because in your kidneys at the very smallest level in your nephrons you have a really small blood vessels going into these nephrons and uh it's called Bowman's capsule blah 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 now if these small um, capillaries doing all the work of all the waste products going out and it's really complicated but if these start to break down then the nephron dies and it stops working so you get kidney failure as the nephrons start to die due to again small blood vessel damage and then you get um in the very small blood vessels that are supplying around the nerves at the end of your fingers and things like this these start to block off and break off so you start to kill your neurons at the end of your fingers so you get peripheral neuropathy you lose sensation and of course, the problem with losing sensation is you bash them and then you get ulcers. And of course, then the skin itself, these are where the smallest blood vessels are going. So the, the blood vessel supplying your, your legs and your periphery are, are starting to die off as well. And so if you damage the skin, it doesn't prepare and you get ulcers. And in fact, this ulcer and gangrene problem, and, and you lose toes and you lose limbs. The commonest reason for, for, uh, for, for amputation below knee and any other form of amputation nowadays used to be smoking. There's now diabetes because you lose the uh, circulation to the skin to the nerves to the eye to the kidneys blah 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 and this is what's going on um, and, it, and it's just the same process so you know people say oh you, oh small vessel disease and atherosclerosis are different things no they're not they're just different manifestations of exactly the same process the problem is of course if you start to break down capillaries small blood vessels, then the total, what they call the peripheral resistance, because obviously the blood's got to go out of the big blood vessels, the arteries, go through the capillaries, back into the veins, and back up. Well, if you start to lose capillaries, it, what they call peripheral resistance starts to increase. So as the peripheral resistance increases, the blood pressure has to go up to force the blood through less capillaries that are there. And, and you see this happening as well in a later stage. And then the kidneys start to fail, and then you get chronic kidney disease and blah, 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 and the whole thing starts to multiply in effect around itself so so uh is di- diabetes from a perspective of a population-wide problem or high blood sugar levels as you say just because no one said you've got diabetes doesn't mean you've not got high blood sugar levels it's just it's not high enough that anyone said it's diabetes yet and, and sometimes it's hiding when you look for it um, so you know it's ridiculous to say we have diabetes and we've got pre-diabetes and we've got metabolic. all these stupid terms that we've got what you've got is 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 there's resistance to the impact of insulin your blood sugar levels up your insulin level goes up and insulin itself is damaging to 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 blood vessels and endothelial cells when the concentration is too high. fantastic stuff insulin but boy you don't want it up here which is which is obviously one of the things that happens with, currently the treatments are to force the sugar level down by driving insulin level up it's like mm, okay fine you know that's like lifting up the edge of the carpet and sweeping everything underneath, stumping up and down it and going, well, we've sorted that out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes.
2: Now a, a related uh,
0: thing is, is cortisol. It's a hormone. It's, we know it, most of us know of it as a stress hormone. Uh, and, and in our current environment, uh, anyone that says they're not stressed out at some point or another is not being truthful. Uh, <laughs> Stress is a a thing, it's out there. And I think for a lot of us, it's adversely affected our health because our cortisol levels are not where they should be. You know, Normal stress of, I see a bear, the bear is dangerous. I know this, I run away. I've burned off a lot of energy doing that and the bear is no longer an emergency and I move on with my life. Whereas if my boss is always yelling at me and I'm always feeling stressed about my work situation or my finance situation or anything else, I'm under a constant state of elevated cortisol. That's also very damaging to our heart, right?
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I started my world of looking at other causes for heart disease with stress. Um, I don't like calling it stress. I think of it strain. But anyway, we will use the word stress. Everyone uses it because everyone kind of knows what they mean. But yes, um, if, you look at, uh, if you look at the impact of chronic negative stress, and people react very differently to stressors, some people cope with it, some people don't, is that, yes, it triggers, whether it's just cortisol, probably isn't. When you trigger the fight or flight system, which a lot of people have heard of, and you have it operating at a chronic level, you cause damage to to the whole system. There's a a neurohormonal system, there's there's nerves throughout your whole body called autonomic nerves that most people have never heard of. They go to your heart, they go to your liver, they go to your blood vessels, they go to your eyes, they go everywhere. Sympathetic and parasympathetic system starts in your brainstem. It's really complicated. Operates alongside a whole bunch of hormones like adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol, epinephrine, they call it mistakes. Cortisol, growth hormone, glucose, glucagon, blah, blah, blah. So, this whole system, this whole fight up system, cortisol is easy to measure. And cortisol has distinct metabolic problems. It's a direct antagonist to insulin, for example, at many sites. So, if you're stressed and you're, your insulin, if you're stressed and your cortisol level goes up, in order to fight this, your insulin level goes up. But it sometimes doesn't go up enough, so your glucose goes up enough. I, I, I'm a firm believer that, that, that chronic negative stress is one of the primary triggers for raised blood sugar levels leading to diabetes. In fact, I, I think in the book I mentioned a study in 1914, I think it was, that I might be anyway, the First World War, people had soldiers who had what they called shell shock, which we now call PTSD. They called it kind of acute neurosis. Um, uh, They actually, you could measure blood sugar and you could measure sugar in their urine. The, The impact of stress on their system was such that they became, the sugar levels were so high that the sugar started to escape from the kidneys, which is a very late stage in diabetes that we would recognize now. And this was entirely due to psychological stress. And you and you can see with, with various um, mental serious mental conditions like psych- schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, etc. That, that that many of these people get end up with what's diagnosed as type two diabetes. And and this is really what currently with schizophrenia, for example, yes, a lot of people commit suicide, but the vast majority of the others die of heart disease. Due, in my opinion, and the opinion of lots of people, to the chronic stress. Leading to the at- chronic activation of the stress flight and flight system, or leading to the metabolic disorders of, that lead to diabetes, that lead to heart disease. And this is—you can see this pattern again. If you look at PTSD, you can see the same pattern. If you look at people who have—I don't know if in the states they use fibromyalgia—we have it here, which is yeah. a very unspecific term, but it basically means lots of pain and difficulty and blah blah blah. And people with PTSD and fibromyalgia is a big crossover. And there's like a five or 600% increase in the risk of diabetes and a five or 600% increase in the risk of dying of heart disease. So, the interrelationship between your brain and your body and how this all works together and creates problems with stress. Now, whether this is all modulated to cortisol, I don't know. But if the cortisol level is up or deranged or is malfunctioning, that's a very good sign that you're your, what they call stress, fight or flight, hypothalamic, pituitary, adrenal axis, give it, or whatever term you want, is not working properly. And it's really important for people to try and get this as normalized and as healthy as possible. Yeah, yeah. now one
0: thing, and I want to jump ahead, uh, and because uh, we know, I mean, I think anyone knows, it's like they, there's some conversations about if you have bad dental health, uh, if you're taking certain drugs, uh, those are obviously going to cause some problems. If you have you smoke or you're subject to air pollution, if you have high blood pressure, all of those are are major risk factors because they're doing damage to your system, and eventually that is causing uh, the heart attacks. But one I wanted to jump forward in because I haven't talked about it here, but it was one thing that my doctor and I started talking about when I was really looking at. At well care versus health, I mean, de- you know, healthcare because normal healthcare is, oh, you have a disease, let's fix it or let's cover it. Um, Mostly, it's let's cover it, Uh, and then. But he and I would have these conversations about health markers on how to improve my wellness. And yeah. one of the things we would talk about would be my homocysteine level. Yeah. You talk about homocysteine and how that's also a factor here for the damage and the factors and things we're looking at.
2: Well, it was a guy called Kilmer McCallie, who's part of a group that I'm also a member of, <laughs> was the first man, I think, to say that homocysteine, which is a protein um, in your blood, it shouldn't really be there. It's a breakdown product. It's an intermediate breakdown product. And if it's in too high concentrations, it damages the glycocalyx and the endothelium. This is just a fact. Um, and, um, and there are certain drugs like... Um, um, they call it Metoprolol here and Lanzoprazole, which is the direct name. I don't know what they actually call them in in the states with regard to their common name. I think it's called Losec here and something else. Anyway, these these drugs, uh, which are commonly used for indigestion and whatever, um, they they block uh, part of the pathway that stops uh, homocysteine from being broken down, and um, and so the homocysteine level can go up. Also, you know, there are other things. Diabetes actually, in itself. If you have a high blood sugar level and a high insulin level. This interferes with the with the breakdown of homocysteine in your blood. So you have to. And some people have a high level, and uh, and some people are are, are most people are blissfully unaware that they've got such a thing in their bloodstream. Um, and and therefore, if it is high, one of the other things that you can do with homocysteine is certain B vitamins um, can reduce because they help with the process that gets rid of the homocysteine so certain b vitamins um, off the top of my head i've just forgotten which ones they are but um, i think it's b yeah it was definitely um, folate b6
0: and i think b12 is what you mentioned yeah, yeah. if world. you have
2: these hormones uh, at a good level then they assist in clearing the, cleansing the homocysteine from your system and there have been there has been research on looking at this with vitamin b Um, But it's been really weirdly manipulated by, in my opinion, primarily by the pharmaceutical industry. You just don't want this to be seen as a thing that people can do. But there is very interesting research on this. And and I think the other thing I did touch on in my book is if you have a high homocysteine level, you are more likely to get Alzheimer's disease. And if you, there has been evidence, a group in Cambridge who gave people um, B vitamins. And again, I've just forgotten which ones they are. but they they demonstrated almost complete stopping of the, of the of the neuronal damage as well, which I think is when you're talking about well-being hypothesis, people don't want to get Alzheimer's, so get these B vitamins in if you have a high homocysteine level and you will not only reduce the risk of of heart disease due to endothelial damage, you will also assist yourself in in brain shrinkage and neuronal damage. whether it's the same process going on. I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows what causes Alzheimer's disease. Anyone who claims to do so is probably not telling the truth currently. Is that what, yeah. that, that's kind of my take on it.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, Dr. Kendrick, I define wellness as being the healthiest, fittest, and happiest you can be. What are three strategies or tactics to get and stay well?
2: Well, I think going back to um The the stuff I was talking about, about mental health and stress and whatever, whatever, there's very good evidence that people who look after their mental well-being so they have good social interactions with other people. If you have a rubbish job, a bullying job, or a stressful job that you hate, get out of it. The population with the highest rate of heart disease in the world are the Aboriginal Australians, um, and and young Aboriginal women have a rate of heart disease which is 3,000% higher than the surrounding population. And this population is is really almost identifiable by the very high levels of what you call psychosocial stress. And, and the, the male Aboriginals, young male Aboriginals, have a complete lack of the early morning cortisol rise in their bodies, showing that their neurohormonal system is seriously damaged. So I think looking after your mental health, looking after your mental well-being, having friends, having good relationships, these are, are having sense of purpose, Enjoying what you do, having interests—these are this is really important. I think I, I see health as being three things: it's psychological, social, and um, psychological, social, and physical. Yeah, sorry. And um, uh, and they're all interconnected. And you can't get proper physical health without having your social health in good state as well. The social health must be in good condition. And I think this is hugely important for cer- certainly for stressed populations. it's really important. And of course, there is there is you know the obvious things to do with them. Um, uh, don't smoke. Well, I think everybody knows that. From a physical perspective, there is exercising. Yes, and if you have got a raised blood sugar level, and you have to look at trying to or pre or whatever condition you want to call it, this is happening to you, then you need to look at. In my opinion, the the way that you deal with this is is to reduce carbohydrate intake. Simply, is one thing to do, absolutely. And um, and that is, um, you know, the trouble is you then end up in this huge battleground of dietary stuff. Because another thing is I say to people, don't see food as the enemy, which we've kind of come to see it as. People don't enjoy yeah. eating anymore. It's so like, well, you can't eat that. Oh, that's terribly bad for you. That's terribly good for you, blah, blah, blah. But in general, normal, natural foodstuffs that you would recognize as foodstuffs are usually healthy for you good for you and enjoyable and stuff that you have to read the label and it's got 56 ingredients you know probably try and look at avoiding that i would think and getting outside in the sunshine and exercising all three together absolutely critically important we're not designed to be inside as animals i don't think we're designed to be outside most of the time sunshine is good for us the exercise when we're outside is good for us just being outside in the countryside is good for us and you can see populations that live longer than any others this is kind of how they live their lives as well so it's getting back to kind of looking at how people maybe were designed to live and getting back to as close as that as you can manage which sounds a bit kind of generic but it it also happens to, to be true
0: dr kendrick thank you so much for that if someone wanted to learn more about you or learn more about the book The Clot Thickens where would you like for me to send them
2: Well there's a there's a large river in Brazil that um, that um, stocks the book um it it uh, <laughs> and it it doesn't damage it
0: doesn't it doesn't damage the
2: <laughs> speaking as an author where they take 70% off the uh, straight off the price of it yeah something any like that <laughs> You can. Uh, I do have a website called Dr. Uh, Malcolm dot org, where you can read my great thoughts on everything. Uh, and the book is available there from the publisher, who's currently just run out of the of copies, but is getting some more printed. So yeah, that's that's, good that's news not That's
0: not. A, yeah, that's not a bad news. That's not bad. That's news. Not bad it'll news be, a, it'll story, be available uh, when you get ready story,
2: to order. Yeah. yeah so. um, and 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 obviously, I have written other books and stuff like that as well. But um if you go to my blog, you can find that out. The book is available on um, on the Amazonian rainforest and. Um, and so you can make Mr. Bozos even richer if you want. Um, but uh, just, I suppose, just say to people that, and, and the, the people that I admire as well that, you know, you should go and have a look at as well, That people like David Diamond is a fantastic researcher. And if you know, not have the and the work of Nina T. Schultz and, um, and those groups over there looking at um, and trying to give you a healthy diet to eat, uh, the work of Gary Tobes, these, these people are working hard. They need They need all support. We need all the support (laughs) we can get.
0: Yes. Thank you, Dr. Kendrick. Thank you so much for being a part of 40 Plus Fitness.
2: Uh, My pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Welcome back, Raz.
1: Hey, Alan. That was a really interesting conversation you had with Dr. Kendrick. And it's kind of refreshing to see a scientist taking a look at a problem in a new light and Personally, I'm kind of glad to hear a little bit more talk about blood sugar being a a problem, more so than the actual cholesterol.
0: Yeah. You know, and and this is really hard uh, because most doctors are going to go through school. They're going to get very little nutrition education, but they're going to be told one thing uh, Mm -hmm. about heart attacks, and that's cholesterol causes heart attacks. If
1: Mm -hmm. your client
0: has high cholesterol, if then, the if then, the then is you got to get them on statins. Right. You got to lower that cholesterol. That's that's the math, and it's the the standard of care. It's the obligation that the doctor has. And you can try to have that conversation. Most doctors are not going to have that conversation with you. They're just going to tell you, that "You got to you got to manage your cholesterol. You've got to manage your blood pressure. And if you manage those two things, you're good to go." Uh, but I want to put forward this quote that it, it was on my timeline from from years and years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I want to, I want to make that. Okay. Minds are like parachutes. They only function when open. And that's Thomas Dewar was the one who said that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So the reality of it is every, you know, it's not that science changes. And we've heard that over and over lately with regards to things that we learn that we didn't know before. And the reality is nothing really changed. Mm -hmm. Just our knowledge of it changed. So at one Mm -hmm. point people thought the earth was flat and then they learn maybe it's not. And then at some point, everybody thought that the everything circuled, circulated around the earth. The sun went around the earth, all the stars and planets went around the earth, and the earth was the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. We now know that's probably not true. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not that the science changed, it's our awareness of the world around us.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: that changes as we learn new things. So Having an open mind and basically saying, okay, this is what I thought. And now that there's new information, I have to rethink it. I have to mm-hmm. open myself up to the fact that what I've been told my whole life could actually be wrong. Yeah. And, there's, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what you were told. And, but mm-hmm. it comes down. And like you said, I think this is the key takeaway. The last part of this book of what can I do about it? because all these books, regardless of what they say, it's what can I do about it? And what Mm -hmm. can I do about it is not new. (laughs) We all know we should keep our sugar lower. Um, I talked in history at one point we were eating two pounds of sugar a year. Now Mm -hmm. we're eating closer to 150 pounds of sugar per year. Could that be a problem? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> okay uh smoking is on a decline as is mm-hmm. heart disease
1: mm-hmm.
0: correlation cause effect i don't know but the base point of where he's saying is and this is true if we're damaging our body
1: mm-hmm.
0: our body has mechanisms to fix itself but if you just keep damaging your body at some point that even that repair system doesn't work well. And we see this across the board. Autoimmune Mm -hmm. disease is a perfect example where something's going on that it shouldn't. So maybe it's, we have a a gut leak, leaky gut. Mm
1: -hmm. And as a
0: result of leaky gut and our immune system constantly having to do these attacks, it finally just flips out and then it starts attacking other things. Um, Hashimoto's disease, you know, it's something's gone wrong and your immune system is attacking your thyroid. Mm-hmm. Um and so there there's these things that happen and if we keep doing what we're doing that caused what we were doing, then we're going to have those problems. So the the fix is the same fix you've heard in every other book. Cut your sugar, cut your processed foods, don't yeah. smoke, manage your stress, keep your blood pressure down exercise, get some sun. Um, mm-hmm. there was so much in the book that I wanted to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we already went, I think an hour on the interview and I, I could yeah. have talked to Dr. I could have talked to Dr. <laughs> Dr. Kendrick for a year. Oh, there boy. was so much in that book. And so it's a book mm-hmm. worth reading. If, if heart disease is something that goes in your family or something that you're generally concerned about, um, it's worth reading the book to just get the idea, you don't have to agree with the theory that it's a blood clot, and then the reason that the cholesterol is in there is because of the LPA two uh, LPA versus the the actual lipoprotein, uh, you know, low density lipoprotein. You don't mm-hmm. have to get into all that. You can read all that; it's cool, it's information. Uh, yeah. But the reality is, the biochemical, the stuff that's happening underneath, mm-hmm. isn't really anything you can control. You can control the inputs, the the sugar. Yeah the stress, the, you know, the, the, the pollution, Mm -hmm. uh, those things. And so, you know, uh, that's the only thing I like to say is keep your mind open and just realize that, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. if it's cholesterol, it doesn't matter if it's blood clots, no medication is going to save you if you're not doing Mm -hmm. the right things otherwise.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Eat better and exercise more and, I, I'm just really thrilled to see that uh blood sugar is being looked at for other diseases, not just diabetes and all of those terrible side effects of that disease. But, you know, there's something to having and keeping an eye on your blood sugar. And I'm I was happy to hear that.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I'm using this continuous uh glucose monitor and just right. checking mine. But I mean, I'm okay, I'm keto, so there's no sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh so yeah. yeah, my my blood sugar follows a pretty, pretty common path. Um throughout the day and, you know, I'm fasting or I'm moving. And so the exercise affects it, uh, mm-hmm. movement, if you know, the movement with the foods I eat affect it. but just kind of looking at it, it's like my blood sugar's pretty, pretty darn steady and, um, not a problem, but it's, it's just the function of saying, okay, what you put in your mouth yep. is going to affect your biochemistry. It's going to affect your body. And it's so funny that people will think, oh, well, this pill is going to do these amazing things for me. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then they're not thinking food would have any impact whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so just, just realize that diabetes and heart disease are interrelated. We've known that he actually shows why, because the damage we're doing to the arterial load, I mean, our lining of our, of our arteries that Mm -hmm. we're shearing it off for causing Mm -hmm. all kinds of problems. And then it's clotting. Yeah, When it's in a big artery over time, that creates that plaque we're talking about when it happens in smaller arteries, which it will, if you're diabetic, -diabetic, pre-diabetic, is it's doing that damage. Now you're losing a toe. Mm -hmm. Now your kidney stops functioning. Um, You know, now you can't see. So Mm -hmm. all the, all the things we say, well, what's happening with diabetic? They they lose their eyesight, their kidneys fail, and they lose feet and toes why well those arteries are are getting messed up and they're clotting mm-hmm. and they're plugging up and the blood's not getting where it needs to go and that tissue's dying mm-hmm. and that tissue dies and then it the, that organ or the skin or the the, the foot it, it's no longer and it's gone yeah. so you lose your eyes you lose your kidney you lose your feet it's the same disease when you mm-hmm. really break it down you think about it in those terms it's the same disease the same cause and the same solution.
1: Yeah. Yep. Something that's really worth taking a look at and monitoring what you're eating. If you don't already do that.
0: Well, it's just sure. cut the sugar. I mean, <laughs> uh, there's, I mean, the processed foods and the sugars, if you're eating whole foods, mm-hmm. just real whole foods and yes, even fruit. Um, mm-hmm. I eat beets almost every night. I'm in keto. You know, it's like, everybody's like, oh, you can't have any like, Eat beets every night. Uh, <laughs> Nice. you know, and, and never go out of ketosis. Uh, you know, but I, I do a lot of work during the day. I I move a lot during the day. And then as a result, mm-hmm. I have some, some needs, you know, and the muscles and the liver are saying, Hey, yeah, thank you for that glucose. I appreciate sure. it. I'm going to split it over here. We might use that tomorrow. Um, but we don't need the sugar, you know, Not beets are delicious. Yeah. You don't need the right. beet sugar. Uh, (laughs) that's where most of our sugar comes from is beets. but, uh, you know, just realize give your body the nutrition it needs and it will protect you. It will Mm -hmm. heal. It will get healthy. And we just don't give that enough thought. We want the magic pill. We want the science to save us. And what's going to save you is your next meal. If Mm -hmm. you make sure your next meal and the meal after that, and the meal after that are mostly whole food. You're going to be a thousandfold better off than if you're throwing down Debbie's and uh, you know, <laughs> doing that stuff. So, you Absolutely. know, just, just realize you have control of this. Mm-hmm. And if you don't think you do, do you have a food addiction or some kind of problem like that? Then get help. Get help for, for that. Sure. Because yes, that's a problem for a lot of people. But the reality of it is food is nourishment. Mm-hmm. Food can be delicious. Um, But if you're eating just for the sake of something emotional, something bored, uh, those types of things, you got to get away from that because that's the killer. That's the one that's coming after you. Um, There's there's no other plot. There's no other twist. (laughs) The murder mystery is solved. We Mm -hmm. just got to catch the criminal. And the criminal is the sugar and the processed foods and the stress and the pollution and smoking and those things. We know that we know who did it. Um, Mm -hmm. It's time to catch them and stop them.
1: Yep. Time to make some changes.
0: All right. Well, Rachel. Rachel, I'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Take care. You too. Thank you. Next time on the 40 plus fitness podcast, we meet Jeremy and Zach, the hosts of the fitness podcast and discuss how they lost a ton of weight and kept it off. This is a discussion of mindset, motivation, I think you're going to enjoy their story. So join us next time. Until then, have a happy and healthy week.